1: I'm your host, Chris Meek. As always, it's great to have you with us again. Our special guest today is Ken Hirsch, co-founder of NGP Energy Capital Management, philanthropist and president and CEO of the George W. Bush Presidential Center. Ken Hirsch, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Thank you for having me. Thanks for your time, sir. Ken Hirsch was born and raised in Dallas, Texas. He graduated magna cum laude from Princeton University with a degree in politics and earned his MBA from Stanford University's Graduate School of Business. Before co-founding NGP, Ken Hirsch was a member of Morgan Stanley & Company's Energy Group, specializing in oil and gas financing and merger and acquisition transactions. He co-founded NGP Energy Capital Management, a premier private equity investment franchise in the natural resources industry in 1988 and served as its CEO until 2016. Under his leadership, NGP invested more than $12 billion and achieved significant investment returns Making one of the nation's leading private equity firms. Today, Ken Hirsch is the president, chief executive officer, and board member of the George W. Bush Presidential Center, a Dallas-based nonpartisan institution which houses the George W. Bush Presidential Library and Museum and the George W. Bush Institute. His focus is on executing the strategy to sustain the Bush Center's mission for the long term. Among his other activities, Ken Hirsch also serves as a senior advisor to the Carlisle Group's Natural Resources Division Sits on the board of the Texas Rangers Baseball Club, serves on the board of overseers of the Hoover Institution as a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Ken, please share with our audience what the Bush Center is all about.
2: Well, thank you, Chris. Um, The Bush Center based here in Dallas uh, is, as you said, a nonpartisan uh, place uh, which houses the Bush Library, the George W. Bush Library and Museum, which is owned and operated by the National Archives. And also the George W. Bush Institute, which focuses on advancing the principles that formed the basis upon which President and Mrs. Bush served the public. Freedom, opportunity, accountability, and compassion. I mean, those sum it up um, pretty, pretty uh, succinctly. Uh, we've, we really want uh, the world to focus on those compassionate conservative principles of less government dependency, being a strong and compassionate country, Uh, as well as being a proponent for economic and political freedom. So how did you meet George W. Bush, and how long have you known him? Well, I've known him uh, since, uh, well, I've known him so long that I could remember calling him by his first name. Um, We met uh, originally in 1989 uh, when he was uh, assembling the group uh, to purchase the Texas Rangers baseball club. Um, And uh, the gentleman whose office I was in at the time and working with, Richard Rainwater, in Fort Worth, Texas, was one of the significant investors, and um, and so the uh, the the office was frequented by the son of the president of the United States um, back in the day, and
1: that's where he and I met. So I think most of our listeners know that President Bush has become quite an accomplished oil painter. Has he gotten you to sit for a portrait session yet? No, um, I, I think he prefers to do the more from photographs.
2: Um, I think it gets a little squirmy if uh, I'm just standing there. <laughs> Posing for, posing for a portrait. Uh, no, I have not. Um, he's been kind enough to do a, a painting of uh, of my daughter and I, and um, it was uh, it was very touching that he did that.
1: So, in what ways is it like other presidents' legacy organizations? In what ways is the Bush Presidential Center's focus and mission different?
2: Well, um, the the Bush Center uh, is focused on and extending the work that was started by President Bush when he was in the White House, and then taking on new work that's inspired by his values. Um, As as I said before, the principles kind of form the basis of what we do, um, but specifically um, in in our domestic program, we focus on making sure that we have strong economic growth, um, that we take care of our veterans, that we pursue education reform to make sure that every student is prepared for college and a career. Um as well as developing future leaders. And then globally, we focus on global health, empowering women, and advancing free societies. Um, those are those are thorny topics. those are tough issues. And a former president has a unique platform uh, upon which to um, to be a thought leader in those areas and uh, and to make a difference. So we hope we are doing um, pursuing activities that are measurable um, and that are presidential in nature and And that's that's pretty consistent with some of the other major um, presidential centers around the country. Um, But they tend to be, that tends to be more of the modern um, presidential centers. If you go back in time, it really was, uh, the presidential centers were largely um, places that were uh, museums and houses for the presidential records. But we have both here in Dallas. We have both the presidential records in the library and museum, as well as um, the Bush Institute.
1: And to your point about it being very engaging, uh, I mean President and Mrs. Bush are unbelievably active and involved and engaged with the library and the institute. And so, to your point, it's a true testament to their continued dedication to serve our, our country and, and to build a better world.
2: Right, and and it's um, it's part of that obligation as well. I mean they they have a unique they have a unique platform, and and through their um, through their voices, um, we're able to really engage in some interesting programming and interesting content that, that we hope will help change the narrative, will help bring the country together and really
1: find solutions uh, to today's pressing challenges. So to that point, you're determined to make the Bush Center a living organism that will continue to thrive even after President and Mrs. Bush are no longer involved. How do you go about creating a built-to-last organization?
2: Well, that's tricky. Um, when, there's a, when there's a person's name on the door um, who everybody wants to come and see and hear from, but that person has a heartbeat and isn't going to last forever. I mean, that, that's the cha- that's the strategic challenge, and quite honestly, that that's the mandate that President Bush uh, asked me to pursue when when um, I took this job about five years ago, and and so we set out to to create a a model by which this place could live long into the future, long past his lifetime, which was his goal. So how do you do that? Well. First of all, you have to be consistent with the values and the voices of President and Mrs. Bush. And as long as you're consistent with those values and voices, you, that can continue philosophically. And then I call that the air cover. That's the air cover of, of what we do. Underneath that air cover, we have to have the Bush Institute build a body of work that represents thought leadership in our areas of expertise, where we become the go-to places for people around the country to listen to learn or to participate with. Second, we need to have programming that is strategically designed and repeatable. Third, we have to have broad and deep engagement with our constituencies and continue to grow those constituencies. And then finally, we need to be set up well financially. Um, so those are kind of the four planks, if you will, that we're pursuing here um, in the strategy. And, and, and I must admit, um, you know, knock wood, we're,
1: we're really clicking on all cylinders. That's terrific. So how has the pandemic affected philanthropic organizations in the past year?
2: Well, it's, it's just been awful um, for this country um, and the world. I mean, uh, nobody sat around and said, you know, let's create a contingency plan for a global pandemic. Um, and, and so nobody could have seen this. Um, we've really been tested uh, as a people. Organizations have been tested. Families have been tested. Communities, countries, you name it. So in the charitable world, um, it really was a gut check as to making sure you knew why you were here. Uh, and, and if you had to pivot, you had to pivot. Uh, but in, and so depending upon uh, the, the charitable organization, some were able to survive, some were able to thrive and some were able to, that were not, unfortunately. Um, in our case, I think that um, we redoubled our efforts um, while, we, while our audiences went online Um, we saw this as an opportunity. Uh, We had to close our physical building here, but fortunately we were already building our virtual platforms. And so moving things online actually allowed us to increase our reach in many ways. Um, Not traveling um, made us more efficient. Um, We're all a little bit sick and tired of zoom, but, but it was effective. And, and people were really looking for our voice. Um, we, were, we were in a very, and still are in a very divisive political world and having, um, having incidents like the George Floyd incident happen amidst the pandemic uh, really provided an opening for, for a presidential center um, with a living former president to, to engage. And whether it was his voice or whether it was Mrs. Bush's voice or whether it was the writing or research or work from our from our various directors and and great uh, members of the institute, of the Bush Institute, I, I think that when we look at our at our engagement, um, you know, I'm, it's a little bit I'm a little bit guilty in saying it, but we did pretty well during the pandemic. Um, I made sure internally that we took care of our people. Um, I made sure that we uh, you know we've had uh, testing every week. COVID testing for everybody and their families um, provided by the Bush center. I wanted to make sure that the people who were working, um, even though we were all working from home, they knew that they were part of a culture that was, that cared about them. um, And that uh, if people feel safe, then they can, they can work well. And if people don't feel safe and they feel isolated, then um, then it's a problem. So I took it upon myself to really make sure that, that uh, we enhanced our communications and we enhanced our, our sense of community, even if it went online, to make sure that um, that we stayed together as a team. And so, you know, it's this was a test. There's no question, um, and I was really proud of the way our team came through, and and honored um, and humbled by the the level of work and the commitment they all made during the pandemic.
1: So I understand you like the expression, and have made it your personal philosophy that every plant needs to be repotted. What does that mean, and how has it shaped your life? Well, um, yeah, when
2: people ask me, you know, why on earth did you leave a, the private equity business um, when you could have done anything and go run a nonprofit? And my answer is that every plant needs to be repotted. Um, I feel energized uh, by what, I, what I'm doing. Um, I think that, that it's really important to make sure that, that your mind stays engaged um, and that you, you're always learning and always challenged um, and always reading and always meeting new people. And if you do that, um, you know, that, that kind of, um, that's good, that's good food for the brain. And, and for me, I think that's really important and, and in my life. And I I was kind of tired of sitting on boards. You know, I, I feel okay sitting on boards, but it's too much too, it's too distant for me. I need to roll up my sleeves and actually get involved in an organization and really, and really leave my mark on it. Um, and and doing that just from a board chair is really it it's hard to do and for me personally it's not my style um while i do sit on boards and i enjoy it i really enjoy getting my hands dirty so um that that's why i did it uh it helps uh at the same time that um this great institution is in my hometown um it's an important asset for north texas it's an important asset for the country it's with uh a family that I that I've known a long time, whose values I share. Um, so it had both mission um, per, and purpose. And that that was a great combination. So I, you know, I feel 20 years younger. I mean, I'm surrounded by people who are who are much younger than I am and way smarter than I am. And
1: I am just tickled to be here and be be one of them. I'm also sure it's pretty difficult to say no when a president asks you to, to do something. Yeah, it's a little
2: challenging.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and again, for listeners who haven't been to, to the Bush Institute, I've spent a lot of time there. I highly encourage you to see it. It's a tremendous, as Ken mentioned, an asset to this country, uh, the legacy of the Bushes. And for me personally, uh, as someone who was at Ground Zero 9-11, uh, going through that part of the museum is something that's very personal to me. And so I highly encourage folks, uh, now that the world is opening up again, and we know that Texas has been open for a while, uh, but, but please stop by and spend some time there. It, it's definitely worth the trip. Thank you for the plug. Now, of course, of course, happy to. And I meant every word of it. So, Ken, what has drawn you to philanthropy and to become president and CEO of the George W. Bush Presidential Center when there are so many other things you could be doing with your time, energy, and resources? You touched on the values. What else is there?
2: Well, I, I think it's a place that, you know, I had already been heavily involved as a donor. And so I saw it from that perspective. And and for to put my time alongside my personal investment um, is a treat I mean that doesn't always get to happen um, and so the the uh, um, the you know sometimes the planets just line up and in this case it, it really did and and I was at the point in my life where I was thinking about about uh, a pivot and I was looking at a handful of other things and and this one you know this one felt right you know and one of my other mantras is don't overthink it and you know, you get to a point in life where you know what you like and you know what you want, and and if you have those ingredients are there, take it. Um, you can spend all your time looking for other things, and at the end of the day, most people kind of know what they want um, when they see it, and uh, especially when you get to to the back half of your life, and you you know you you're really you really have a little bit of perspective. So when you sit, you know, when I saw it, I grabbed it um, and said the to the to the board that if they wanted a, an alternate kind of candidate um, to do this job. I'd be happy to take a stab at it.
1: You talked about personal investment. Through your family foundation, you've given away more than $30 million to mental health initiatives, leadership development, education, culture institutions. How do you choose the causes that your foundation supports?
2: Well, first of all, I like to give to what works. Um, I, I actually don't think of it as, as giving. I think of it as investing. And you're investing your dollars in an organization that produces a return, and it may or may not be a financial return. It may be it may be other other aspects, but you want it to work. Um, and and so that's I mean first and foremost that's what that's what we want. Um, there's lots of very very needy and very very effective um, organizations out there. I wish I could add a zero to my giving total, um, and uh, and I feel totally inadequate when when I Get involved in these things because it's, the, the needs are so are so voluminous. Um, but the but you know we we like taking care of of we like trying to find things that have leverage. When I mean leverage, you know, one dollar can help one person, but that one person can help thousands of people. That's great. And um, you know, so if you if you if you find organizations like that, you just want to keep investing in their work. Um, as long as they're doing really good work that's measurable and 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 is building, um, I don't like bridges to nowhere. Um, you know, it, the there's a lot of organizations that might that are wonderful organizations and they're doing something, and and it's interesting and it's needed, and then it's over, and and I I tend to not like that. I and that's what attracted me to the Bush Center when I when I made one of the founding investments um, in the founding group when this place was before it was even built. Um, the, there was a real plan to, to not just put up a building, um, but to have ongoing programming. And I actually wanted my dollars to be targeted toward the programming.
1: As we talk on this podcast about personal empowerment and well-being, how can others apply your philosophy to their own lives to change our world for the better?
2: Well, as I said, don't overthink it. Um, and, and I mean that. Um, a lot of people say, you know, someday I would do this, someday I might do that. Or I can't wait to do this, and my answer is just what? Go do it. Um, and and that may end up being a little impetuous, but for people who know what they're doing, it's generally not. And they tend to look back and say, "Wow, I'm glad I did." And you know, don't be afraid to fail. Um, if you don't, you know, if you don't put yourself out there, then you'll always be in the situation of saying, "Hey, maybe someday I'll do this. Maybe someday I'll do that." You know, you got to put yourself out there and, and, and do it. And you know, my other, my other uh, one of my other isms is to raise your hand. Um, there are so many places that, that need help, and there's so many causes, and there's so many jobs. Too often people say, Well, I'm not really the one, or I don't know. I don't know if I'm well trained for that, or I don't know anything about it. Well, you know what? Just raise your hand and say, I'll do it. And, you know, if, if you're not completely panicked and, and about to throw up on your first day of the job, then you're in the wrong job. You know, if you got the job down pat on the first day, you're you're way undershot. So, you know, my feeling is get out there and go and just say, I'll figure it out. And nine times out of 10, you will figure it out. And the one time out of 10, you don't, you'll pull yourself up and learn from it and you'll go on and you'll be better for it. So I really do feel that that, um, that, that that's the best way that that's the best way to go. And and you'll feel better. You'll have more agency. You'll, you'll, be, you'll be doing things in an affirmative way. Um, and then when you succeed, you'll look back and say, hey, I did that. I didn't know anything about it at the time, and now I do. Isn't that interesting? And it's so, it, there's no better feeling in the world. And that's, you know, going back to the Bush philosophy, it's about less government dependency, right? You, I, I really am not a believer in universal basic income. Even if, even if somebody can earn the exact same dollar or be handed that same dollar, if the dollars are the same, the dollar that comes as a reward for, for a hard day's work or an honest day's work is 10 times more valuable than a handout of the same dollar. And I just feel like that dignity, that human dignity that comes from being empowered, that comes from being in charge of your own destiny. And that's what freedom and Liberty. And, and that's what, that's what makes this country what it is. And, and, um, and so I just feel like the more people put themselves out a little bit, um, the more resilient they'll find themselves, the more, the more proud they're going to be when everything works out. And if it doesn't work out, they're going to be proud in a different sense. They're going to say, you know what? It made me stronger. And, and off they go.
1: I read a profile about you. <clears throat> Excuse me. As a college student, you wrote a cold call letter to legendary investor Richard Rainwater to ask for a summer job. You ended up getting the job and forging a lasting business relationship that changed the financial and energy sectors and created, tr- created tremendous wealth. That wasn't the only bold move you made, even as you're still in your 20s, that paid off for you. Did you think of that job-seeking episode as a risk, and do you think of yourself as a risk taker?
2: Well, that's a good question. I don't think it was a risk at all. I mean, I, I needed a job, um, and I it was between my years of business school, um, and so I was just looking for a summer job. Um, the… the uh, when I and I and I was fortunate enough to to swing an interview, and I went to his office and he he told me he has no summer employment. He just wanted to meet me because he saw my resume and said Stanford and he had gone to Stanford. So, um, so I was like you know, under my breath, I was like, God damn! I I made all this. I'm all the way here in Fort Worth, Texas. And he doesn't have a job. And and he and then we started talking and he said, Well, what do you think about the oil and gas industry? And I said, Richard, how about I draw I I I for my summer job. I do an analysis for you of who might win and who might lose given what was predicted to be happening in the oil and gas industry coming up. And he said, write me a proposal. So to me, I did. did. And that formed the basis of my summer job, which formed the basis of what was then called natural gas partners, which turned into NGP energy capital management. And, but at the time I didn't think I was taking any risk. I mean, I had so little downside. Um, So what the heck? Um, So I, to me, it was more thinking on my feet and it was more raising my hand and saying, okay, I'll, you know, let me try something. And I had no idea what I was doing at the time, but, you know, for some reason I had the confidence to give it a shot.
1: And that risk paid off. Yeah. We've been talking to Ken Hirsch, president and CEO of the George W. Bush Presidential Center. We'll be right back after a short break. What's the difference between leaders who achieve exceptional results with ease and those who struggle to keep up? Tune in for Leading on Purpose with Nicole Bendeley. You'll discover the simple practices that are making the biggest difference to a leader's success today. You'll meet leaders who are bringing out the best in their teams. You'll gain practical strategies to lead yourself and others to high performance with ease. Leading on Purpose airs live Mondays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific on the Voice America Empowerment Channel.
0: It's time to serve, learn, change the world.
1: are you looking for life's answers how about the meaning of true self can you really be a better person overnight well good luck with that now if you really want to know more about this insane world and life we lead tune into dr gary bell's absurd psychology you'll learn about how the brain operates under different psychological conditions some common sense heck you might just actually learn something Listen Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment.
0: You are listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to Chris at nextstepsforward.com now back to this week's show
1: and we're back with our guest ken hirsch co-founder of ngp energy capital management philanthropist and president and ceo of the george w bush presidential center we were talking about risk before the break how should we assess risk and reward when we're trying to decide what to do let me back up and, and first ask do you think most people take big enough risks
2: well, I don't think people take smart enough risks. Um, big risk, you know. A lot of times, people will say, "Well, you know, I, I saw this a mile away, and I, you know, I should have invested in it, or I should have done this." Um, and I, and, and I don't want to fault people because at the time, um, it might have it might have looked really risky, and in hindsight, it looks like it was a it might have been a missed opportunity. So that's not really the the in my opinion, the mistake that people make. I don't think people assess risk properly. And, you know, there, there are countless examples, um, simple things, um, where we just don't calculate the reward relative to our effort uh, at this, in the same way. People will, will spend $5 of gasoline to drive across town because they have a coupon to save a dollar. But because the, ca- the gas is already in the tank and they already spent that money and the dollars to be spent, they value the next dollar that they're saving more than the $5 that they spent because they don't, they don't really appreciate um, that. But that's human nature. I mean, human nature doesn't really assess that risk as well when it's a sunk cost versus a future, a future expenditure. That's just one tiny example. But I think we, 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 over, we, over, um, we overemphasize and overweight potential loss relative to how good we would feel from the potential gain. So, for example, if you make an invest, if we did a bunch of analysis and we chose to, make, to buy a stock, and I'll put these in business terms because that's my background. But if we do a bunch of analysis and we choose to buy a stock, if the stock goes up, that's what's supposed to happen because I'm smart and I did all this work and I bought it and it went up. If it goes down, you're like, gosh, darn it, what did I miss? And you beat yourself up. Even though the gain, you might have made a dollar of gain and instead you made a dollar of loss. It's only the dollar. But we... but we we beat ourselves up for the dollar loss more than we pat ourselves on the back for the dollar gain. So if you own, if you own a portfolio of two stocks and one goes up hundred dollars and the other one goes down hundred dollars, you will focus on the one that's down and you'll kick yourself and say, why did I lose that hundred? When in reality, your portfolio is even. And so to me, I think that that, that, that uh, quality of human nature is such that has people, whether it be in investing or in their personal life, tend to be more risk averse because the pain of a loss is more hurtful than a than a victory is um, feeling good, okay? So that ratio is out of whack with our emotion. And so we have to fight that. And so you'll see you'll, people will stay in a dead-end job. They'll stay in a dead-end relationship because they're too nervous about what would happen, what would happen. And to me, it's because they're over, they're really over, uh, they're overweighting what the bad stuff that could happen relative to to the status quo. So I, I and I do believe that, that, and that's been borne out in psych, psychological studies and whether it be investing or in life, you name it, that's just human nature. So, um, so I, so I don't think it's that people aren't taking big enough risks, but I don't think people take smart enough risk. And if you have certain things going on in your life that might be, Really strong and good, you might be able to let out a little leash in another department of your life, and and then the, your portfolio of life is still okay, right? So if you if you own four stocks and you have room in your portfolio for a fifth stock, and your four stocks are doing well, and you want you can take a little risk on the one, and it'll either really juice your portfolio, and if it lo- loses, it'll just it won't be as bad because you balance it. That's the, you can put that in non-monetary terms and and reach the
1: exact same. Uh, dynamic. Let's talk about your start in business. You said that you never have a game plan, that you enjoy the fog of the future, not knowing what is going to transpire and being more in the moment. That seems to run counter to all the how to succeed advice books that tell us that we need to take actions today to achieve our goals five or 10 years from now. Why no game plan? How have you made that approach works well for you and those around you? Well, you're exactly right. I, um, and I'll
2: I'll share with you a secret. Um, the amount of time that I've spent reading um, the self-help, how to do well in business books, is precisely zero minutes. Um, and and because I don't I don't think that there's a way to do a business plan for your life. Um, the best laid plans are typically derailed before you get started. So the best thing to do is to get started, and keep your eyes and ears open. Now, I'm not saying do something stupid. I'm not saying do something crazy. I'm saying do something and ask yourself these simple questions by doing the next thing. And you don't have to do everything. You just have to do the right next thing. And if the next thing is right, if it's career oriented, am I going to a place that has a good mission that I agree with? It may be a mission to make a widget. It may be a nonprofit mission. It doesn't matter. Do I I believe in the cause? Do I believe in what we're making? That's one. Two, are there good people there? Are there people that I emulate? Am I going to learn from it? Am I going to become a better person having worked there and around these people? So you don't want to be around sketchy businesses or sketchy people or people with bad backgrounds. If you're around good quality people, good quality people tend to tend to make lemonade if the world gives them lemons. And so if you overthink what you're doing because of whatever, if you're if you really focus on the essence of what you're doing, it's really joining a group of people to pursue that mission. That mission may be product, it may be, it may be a cause. And and then be nimble. So when I say I enjoy the fog of the future, I kind of am. I'm excited by I don't know what the future is going to bring, but I have confidence that if I need to zig or zag, I'll do it. And I'm not getting any less qualified by toiling away at what I'm doing now because I'm learning and I'm around good people. And good people tend to say, if this business is going X and it ain't working, we got to go Y, they'll do it. And they'll say, come on with me. Or you say, guys, have you seen this? We need to turn the ship. And next thing you know, you're turning it. So I, to me, that's, what, that's what's exciting. People who are too rigid in their design, they tend to have blinders on. And the world is way too complicated. And there's way too much chaos. And so navigating the uncertainty is really what business is all about. Because there's way too much to pre-program. And so that's where I say, I enjoy that. And I like to think of it in terms of option value. By, by getting a good education, you have option value in your life. By going to a company or going being around a group of people that are that are energized and are thinkers and are doers, there's option value there. There's optionality because we don't know what's going to happen. But boy, we got the team of people who could go do it. And then if you're in an exciting industry, there's option value because the industry might always be changing. So these are, you know, to me, technology is always evolving. So the technology industries have lots of option value. Now, I don't know what that means, but I promise you, if you went to work for Amazon when it was a bookseller and go, I think this book business is terrible, I'm not going there, you missed it, (laughs) okay? And I bet when Jeff Bezos started saying selling books, he didn't think for a minute that they were gonna be one of the biggest internet network providers. Nobody knew what the cloud. I mean, back when Amazon got started, the cloud were really clouds outside. So I mean, I just think that that people again, this is that risk assessment. People don't appreciate what happens when you build options in your life. And there's a whole big upside that you can't even quantify. So why try? Why bother? Put yourself in a position where when it shows up, either you create it, or if it shows up,
1: you can Pivot and go tackle it. Your mom and stepfather were both college economics professors. While you studied public policy and political science at Princeton, did their passion for economics influence your decision to go into finance, or help you in any way when you did? Uh,
2: no, not at all. Uh, my stepfather was a near socialist, um, so that we didn't really talk <laughs> about talking. We didn't talk economics all that much. Although I was, I was, um, I, I was a a, a quiet uh, ghost grader of of some of my mother's uh, economics class exams. I don't know if her students ever appreciated that, that some ninth grader was in part grading (laughs) their exams, but um, I did, did, maybe I got a little bit by osmosis.
1: You were at the forefront of a private equity ownership strategy early in your career. And I'm gonna use the word again, risk. Based in large part on research that you did, Richard Rainwater and a few others, including you, create a $100 million fund to do equity ownership deals in the energy sector. You hadn't been out of college very long. You still had student debt and a small income, but you borrowed $75,000 to get in that fund. How'd you know that that was the right risk to take? Um, I
2: didn't Um, (laughs) Talking about fog in the future. Um, I didn't know it was the right thing to do, but I was betting on myself. Um, And the, uh, at the time, my calculus was pretty simple. Uh, I'm not getting any less qualified by doing this, and my partners and I um, were went after it, um, and we had confidence in ourselves, and off we went. The um, the you know you referred to the the philosophy around what we created, um, what we created at NGP was an investment model that was really um, strange at the time and people dismissed it as crazy because my partner, David Alban and, and myself, we were uh, liberal arts guys. um, And we were not geologists. We are not geoscientists. We were not um, petroleum engineers. And here we were allocating capital in a very, very technical industry. And what we found was that when we were reliant upon um, engineering consultants and geologic consultants to tell us what worked and what didn't, we lost touch with the essence of the decision. And we were relying upon these third parties who were hourly, you know, paid paid by the hour, who had no ownership. They, they weren't invested in our funds, but they were sitting there telling us what, you know, what was going to work and what wasn't. And that was, might've been true of the physical molecules that were coming out of the ground that they were trying to help us quantify. But in the energy industry what's coming out of the ground is only one part of the equation. The costs to get them out of the ground, the commodity price which is a function of geopolitics and economics and macro macroeconomic and trade and you name it. I mean the and interest rates you, the 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 value the value equation was so much more than just the volume. And the volumes is what technical people could tell us. And so what we found is that the better bet was not to focus on the asset, but rather focus on the people. Because if you think about an oil and gas well, and this is the work I did after about two years of investing, where we had a couple deals that really worked and a couple deals that didn't. And the deals that didn't work were were, were deals essentially where the where because commodity prices declined, the value of the assets declined. And the ones that did work They worked because people were really in. They had great ingenuity. The people running the company had great ingenuity and knew how to trade assets, grow assets, decrease costs. Really had to operate. Plus, we're great deal people in and around the industry. So we said, "We said, you know what? The the quality of the people is more important than the quality of the asset." And because we weren't technical. That was right in our wheelhouse. So we said, let's not do any more of these kinds of deals. Let's do a lot of these kinds of deals. So we said, we we're gonna completely flip this model on its head and we said, we're gonna put commitments to put up equity capital behind people who then wanna take our dollars and go shopping. And, and we will shop with them. And they'll, they'll, we're gonna find people who, are, who have expertise in a particular area and who are passionate about what they do. So our due diligence was not about the molecules. Our due diligence was asking these people, what are you passionate about? What gets you up in the morning? What kind of leader are you? How do you assemble a team? Who do you want on your team? How do you deal with adversity? How do you deal with uncertainty? How do you assess risk? I mean, we spent weeks with our entrepreneurs to try to find great people and said, okay, this team is a winner. Let's give them you know, a $30 million equity line of credit and have them go shopping because they're going to find stuff. And if they spend two or $3 million and blow it, that's okay. We got more. They'll learn from that. And, and that liberated our decision-making. And it really aligned ourselves with great operators. And we weren't so handcuffed by the value of the asset and saying, well, the asset's worth 12 and we can't pay a dime more than that. Frankly, all oil and gas wells deplete over time. So when you go to exit this company in 10 years, the assets you're looking at today will be, virtually depleted 10 years from now. So when you go to sell the company 10 years from now, what's going to be there? It's going to be the assets that this management team acquires or develops over the next 10 years with our capital. So let's not stress about the individual asset. Let's make sure that that they really are good custodians for, capital, for, for our capital and really understand how to grow value. Anyway, and that's when it just took off. And so I think that that, that that's formed such a basis. People thought that was way too risky. How can they could possibly put up this money and there's no assets and these people are gonna go shopping and they don't even know what they're gonna buy. And I just said, no, they're gonna buy good stuff. You know, I, why? Because they're smart. They're not gonna buy bad stuff. And of course we have a portfolio of people doing it and, and um, you know, everything seemed to work out in the end and you were able to adjust on the fly. If commodity prices change, you could change your, your valuation techniques or parameters. So anyway, it, it, it ended up, people thought it was much riskier and it ended up being, being less risky. Now today, there are probably 25 private equity funds and there's probably 1,000 private equity-backed companies, all of which allocate capital according to the way we invented back in 1990. And um,
1: it's one of the things that I'm most proud of. So I promise this is the last question about risk, but I read that you disliked investment banking because folks in that profession get paid when a transaction is completed, whether it's a good deal or not. You wanted to work with investors who put their own money at risk. Why was that so important to you?
2: Well, because until you have your own skin in the game, you really don't appreciate what it means to have your own skin in the game. And back to my earlier comment, it's easy for people to say, well, you know, gosh, I wish I knew I I, I said we should buy that stock or make that investment 10 years ago. Well, sure, in the middle of the global financial crisis, it's easy to say, yeah, 10 years ago, you should have made this investment because look where it is today. But remember where you were in the global financial crisis. It was a disaster. It looked like everything was burning. Nobody was putting money out. So it's really hard to stand in there and do that. So the, um, you know, for 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 me, the um, thinking thinking about really um, really making sure that what you're doing um, is aligned with the people you're doing it with, and when both parties have their money in it. And both parties are sweating the outcome, then you can be intellectually honest. If things aren't working out, you're saying, you know, I've lost 10% of my money, I don't want to lose any more than that. So we need to pivot. If one person has no money in it, they might say, Well, let's swing for the fences. We got 90 cents left. Let's swing. The other person's going, No, we're, you know, we're down 10 cents. So if you're both in it together and it's a meaningful, it's a meaningful investment for both of you, then there's alignment. And if you're, you know, when I say we want to back great people, That's true, but you wanna be aligned at the same time. That alignment is important. And we would spend a lot of time asking people, how much do you wanna invest in this business plan? And it meant more to us when somebody said, I got $20,000 in savings and I wanna put $5,000 into this. That meant more to me than if somebody says, I wanna put $2 million in it, but they have $20 million in the bank. I'd rather have the person who says, I'm putting in a higher percentage because I have such good conviction that we're gonna do smart things. And so I think that that's, again, a way to dial your risk down because nobody wants to lose money. And so if you lose, you got to be intellectually honest and say, did we goof? Was it a mistake? You know, or was it just just the volatility? If it's just the volatility, it's going to turn around, then we're going to stick with it. And here we go.
1: So I want to talk a little bit about the fun part of our conversation that I think would be a big surprise for our listeners. I don't picture you as an esports and gaming aficionado but well, you jumped in that realm in a big way five years ago. What was the impetus for that chapter of your life story and how you expect it to play out over the years ahead?
2: That's a good question. Yeah, when I made this investment in eSports, my son called me and said, dad, Reddit is blowing up. And I said, what is Reddit? And what is, <laughs> is it blowing up a good thing or a bad thing? Um, yeah, I, uh, I by, by virtue of my being a very small owner of the Texas Rangers uh, baseball team, I am keep a, keep abreast of the the sports business, and about five years ago, I noticed um, the emerging references in some of the industry rags that I read that um, that esports was evolving. And I'm like, what the hell is esports? And so I googled it, like everyone else, and saw that it's competitive video game playing. And then I looked at the numbers, and oh my God, this isn't just competitive video games. This is an entire ecosystem that's global, that includes hundreds of millions of people, that's growing at 15% a year, the revenue is growing at 30% a year, and there are not a ton of ways to play it financially. And so I started looking at it, and I said, you know, here's what, in my prediction, what's going to happen. It's going to go mainstream. This is not a bunch of 13 year old boys sitting in their basement you know playing grand theft auto this this is this is highly educated global connected technologically savvy people who are totally consumed in the games they're playing guess what you like golf you're out there playing golf and you're in the zone no difference no difference whatsoever people criticize oh people sit there for three or four hours and play video games People stay on the golf course for five or six hours, right? People go to NASCAR and they'll stay, spend all day. So, I mean, I just think that that it's real. And what I noticed is it's going to converge and the physical world is going to move into this virtual world and vice versa. Um, and so that is that is what's happening. And so you're seeing events show up where they're live events, where people want to go watch and stand in a screaming auditorium watching other people play play video games. No different than a bunch of people sitting in the stands watching other people play Baseball, so that to me is is interesting, and um, and then and then the opportunity to invest again with a really strong group of people, Mike Rafale, who is the founder uh, and game game chief gaming officer of Envy Gaming. Um, we now have the Dallas Fuel, which is our Overwatch team, and the Dallas Empire is our Call of Duty team, which happened to have, be the world champion uh, Call of Duty team. We won the world championship last year. I mean, those are professional teams. These are professional athletes. These are really, really skilled at playing their, their game. No different than a really skilled golfer playing his or her game. And matching up my investment philosophy around backing really great people, backing something that is growing like a weed and that has a really interesting strategic challenge of, of taking this virtual world and moving it into the physical. As people now, you have over 120 colleges and universities have um, esports programs. Um, You can get a degree in esports marketing from Ohio State. There, I mean, there's just there's you look it up. It's amazing how evolved this is now as a real as a real industry. Um, And and so it's not just a it's not just video games entertainment industry. It's evolving into the professional sports um, arena as well. So I I thought that convergence and being around the, 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 the strategic goal uh, or the, the strategic objective of how do you build a brand? How do you build a following? Um, it's no different than putting out a product. How do you build a customer base that's gonna be loyal to your brand, right? If you're Kraft Foods, you go to the, that's the exact same calculus that you're doing. So anyway, that's the um, not unlike the Bush Center where there's, the, where there's President Bush, but we're, there's a brand there. And that brand means something it, it it means compassionate conservatism. Well, how do you bring that to life? So that to me is the had, it had all the ingredients and uh and I just did it. Um, I didn't overthink it. and I said, let's put some chips down on the table and get involved and And as we got involved, we now have a portfolio of about a dozen companies um, in the eSports and gaming arena. It happens to be also on the cutting edge. Gamification, so many industries. Um, are, are, you have to go where your customers are and you have to speak the language of your customers. And there are so many ways, whether it be education or whether it be product management, um, where, where turning things into games is a way to really, uh, bring your product to life. Um, and so that visualization exercise, um, is very transferable. So it's, it's exciting, um, for me to, to be involved in an industry that's emerging, but, um, you know, again, I, it's not because I'm an esports player, but again, I'm not a geologist either. You don't want me anywhere near operating an oil and gas well. And I, I don't know the difference between halo and call of duty. So, you know, but that's okay. <laughs> I can't throw a 95 mile hour fastball either. <laughs>
1: well, it's interesting. You talk about the, the physical sports world merging with the virtual world and for the nonprofit work I do, um, you know, when in, we're involved with an IndyCar team and before during COVID before they started IndyCar season, they had virtual races. Mm -hmm. And so the fans would vote, like what track do they want to see them on? And then, uh, you know, off they went. And to your point, there were millions of people watching this. Yeah, I remember. It's been been fascinating. So, Ken, we have just a few minutes left. What's your parting advice for our audience about how they can feel more empowered, lead through adversity, and achieve their goals?
2: Well, first and foremost, um, surround yourself with great people. and be one of them. Um, stay a million miles away from the foul line. Um, that Richard Rainwater used to always say that there's a lot of people who are very comfortable operating in the gray area. Don't go there. Don't even go near it. It's a bad trade. And if you surround yourself with great people and you wake up and say, how are we going to do the next thing? Right. You don't have to do everything. You just have to do the next thing. Right. And, and, and I think that that means that's a great way for me to lead my life. I don't, I try not to overthink it. Um, I try to put myself in a position, um, where I can be effective today. And if I can be effective today, then I'll work on tomorrow, tomorrow. And, and, and it's not, it's not rocket science. Um, it really isn't. And I think people, they tend to, um, uh, they tend to undershoot, um, what they're capable of. And, and I think leadership, um, and and so I think that, that leader it comes down to the way you're going to lead your life, and leading your life is about being a leader. Not and and le- too often people say, well, you know, that person who's at the podium, she's a leader. I'm not a leader. I disagree. Leadership can be at your kitchen table with your family. That's leadership. How you're raising your family? What kind of family member are you? In your community, on your sidewalk. I mean, there's, you, you are both a leader and a follower probably two dozen times in the day. Ask yourself when you have an interaction, am I a leader or am I a follower? You hold the door open for somebody, you're a leader. You're saying, here, I'm going to take the lead, let you pass through the door first, and, I, and then I'll be right behind you. That, I mean, I just, I just think people need to have more confidence in themselves to say, I'm doing it right, and I'm going to take those steps. And don't just defer and say, I'm going to wait to be told or wait to be let. Um, and I think if you do that, then, then good thing, more good things will happen to you than bad. And, the, and everything in life is a portfolio. We're going to take two or three steps forward and a half a step back, and that's okay. Okay. And it's going to happen, but just put it in perspective and keep moving forward. Um, and, uh, and if you do that and you surround yourself with great people, then good things will happen.
1: Ken Hirsch, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. And thank you to our audience for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. For more details about upcoming shows and guests, please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash ChrisMeekPublicFigure and on Twitter at Meek underscore USA. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place with another leader from the world of business, politics, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward.